Brian Wolf claims to be the best private investigator in the Los Angeles area. I'd love to take him at his word, but when I looked him up on Yelp, he had zero reviews, and that's not good. So I paid him a visit with a plan to change that. When did you first know that you liked to snoop? <laughs> snoop. No, it's not really snooping. I mean, it's well, just, it it's, it's not. You know what I mean? It's observing. We call it observing. Well, here's the thing. I looked you up on Yelp, and you have zero reviews. Zero reviews. Well, what do we name? Yelp. Yelp's a website where people you look. You look me up on Google. You just look up Wolf Investigations. What about Yelp? Okay, you keep on going on about Yelp. Why do I care about Yelp? Seriously, now let's just think about this for one second, okay? Been in business for 24 years. Why do I care if Yelp has a review about me? Do you think I really care about Yelp? I don't give a f about Yelp. You're kidding me. Are you done having your tantrum? I'm sitting down, I'm relaxed. Just listen, I can't just give you a review without knowing how good you are. Okay. So I'm gonna hire you to track a person. Okay. I'm gonna give you 24 hours to track my whereabouts. <laughs> and if you do a good job at that, I'll give you a five-star review. Easy. Easy? Easy. All right. Okay. Ready? Ready. Set? Go. The most perfectly even feel person I've interviewed to date. That's saying a lot. <laughs> it is. Growing from 1 million to 4 million to 16 million to 25 million in revenue. One lesson that I've learned multiple times is... And I think a big litmus test for whether an app might be valuable for you or not is are customers really wanting to use your product every week, every few weeks or more frequently? Or do you want your customers to use your service that frequently and they don't really have a compelling reason to do it? So my name is Kevin Borders. I am 35 and I live in Arlington, Virginia currently. I'm one of the co-founders of Collage.com and currently run the company with Joe Golden, the other co-founder and co-CEO who's based out of San Francisco. And Collage.com sells custom photo products online via drop shipping, and we've been around since 2010. How much did Collage.com cost? That is a great question. <laughs> it cost us $200,000. Jeez, all right. When did you actually buy that domain? We bought that domain in 2012, and we were lucky enough to structure the agreement with the owner where we didn't have to pay $200,000 up front because we were a bootstrap startup. We paid $30,000 up front, another $30,000 after one year, and then the remaining $140,000 two years after that. By the time we got to the second year, luckily the domain name had already more than paid for itself. I'm glad I asked because that's different ways for people to think about if they want to buy a domain, right? You don't necessarily have to come up with it all up front, it sounds like. With this, we negotiated a special deal with the owner to make this work. But definitely when you're buying a domain name, the owner will often ask an extortionate price because it's a unique asset. And a lot of people think their domain names are worth a lot more money than they actually are. And for us, I would say... There was some SEO benefit to having collage.com, but the greater benefit was the legitimacy that it lended us as a company when we were talking with potential partners like Groupon because they saw our domain name and it immediately gave us some credibility since we didn't have any outside investors to back us up. When you're structuring that, did you have to get attorneys involved or do you use something simple in order to purchase it? Because I'm just wondering, it all depends, right? but they might think like 20,000 is a lot for a domain and might be someone who's doing a startup and they don't have $20,000. So I'm just wondering, 
if they need to get attorneys involved or like what suggestion you might have for them on something like that too? If you're buying a domain name from a standard seller of domain names like GoDaddy and paying them a few thousand dollars using a standard purchase agreement, I wouldn't be so concerned. If you're negotiating any sort of important transaction with a third party, then it's almost always very important to make sure that a lawyer looks stuff over. We'll probably dive into that because I'm curious too, as far as why we might have needed attorneys, because I don't know the whole story yet. So we'll all go along with it. If in case everyone doesn't know what a collage is, can you tell us what it is and like who your customers are? Yeah. So our first product that we started off with was a photo collage that had a large number of photos. That was what we advertised. That's what we emphasized. Now we sell a broader set of any photo products, including single photos on phone cases, photo books. But the whole idea of collage and our original value proposition is that we let people use as many photos as they want in their design and arrange them however they want, which wasn't possible on other websites when we started the business. And so did you and your co-founder, it sounded like it was a guy as well? Yes. So did y'all just enjoy making collages in college or something? Like why did you decide to do this? The way that we got started actually is that I made an anniversary gift for my girlfriend at the time. We had about a thousand photos that we had taken traveling and I wanted to put them all together into a collage, but it wasn't possible to do that with Photoshop because it was just too much. So I actually worked to create new software that would let you build a collage with a huge number of photos and render that collage so that you could view it digitally on a computer and zoom in on any of the individual photos, kind of like Google Maps, and see the whole collage without crashing your computer in the process of making it. And the result turned out really, really well. I was happy with it, and it was so interesting that me and Joe decided to try to turn it into a business and make that software available so that other people could do the same thing. And are you still with that girlfriend? Yes. She's the mother of my child and my wife now. So the collage worked for its original purpose. Yeah. Keeping her around. Because most people, when they think collages, I think of like moms or girls or girlfriends, like girls in sororities or whatever. Just I guess now a lot of people don't think of photos as something that you print out, but especially kind of when we were growing up, those were actually things you printed out and maybe people would cut around them and then put them all on a poster or something like that, right? Yeah, our main market is gifts. And our most popular product is a photo blanket. A lot of people will put 20 photos of their kids on a photo blanket and give it to grandma and grandpa or give it to mom for Mother's Day. Mother's Day is one of our big holidays. And we're also very seasonal with Christmas, having about half of our revenue for the entire year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So a lot of people give these products as gifts because it's a really unique and emotionally impactful type of thing that is going to make mom more excited probably than a basket of fruit. That's a good thing to work into your business model, huh? Yes. Yeah, something emotional. Again, something that kind of differentiates that we can make, like you just said, even a fruit basket or flowers. I mean, flowers, I guess, are still somewhat could be emotional, if you will, if giving it to them. But it's kind of cool to, if I gave my mom pictures of my brother and sister and I or something on a blanket or something, then it's a lot more personal. It looks like you obviously put a lot more thought into it. And one of the important principles on which we base our business is that there's a lot of value in the creation process of this personalized gift 
and you're using this software to make this special collage of your photos and a lot of the value you derive from the product is before you even put in your credit card number, it's while you're making it. And is that an enjoyable experience that allows you to express your creativity or are you wanting to throw your computer out the window because you can't put your photos where you want? And when we looked at the other companies in the industry, when we were getting started, we felt like it was more of the latter category where they were rife with usability problems, all sorts of technical issues. And it was really a painful experience to make a lot of these photo products. And we saw an opportunity to make it a lot better for people. So does Kevin wake up every morning making photo collages? No, I don't. I will definitely make photo collages on a regular basis. I made a great book for Valentine's Day for my wife of all of our baby's photos and sent it to the grandparents. It's really important to use your product, but also important to have reflective distancing on it too. If you're using it every single day, it can be hard to see things from the perspective of a customer that doesn't use it every day. And if you're making a project every month or two or something like that, then it gives you a lot greater insight into what the experience might be like for a customer. And you used collage.com, right, to make that product? Yes, I did. I'm just making sure, because it's the best one out there. I'm not a masochist. <laughs> well, that's a big word. I'm going to have to go ahead and Google that. So you've been around for how long, your company? We started the first project, this photo collage gift for my girlfriend at the time in 2007. And then we went through a phase where we were trying to find our business model and product market fit and pursued a digital only solution, then tried to work with existing companies on a white label solution and finally launched our own website where we sold products directly to customers, which is our current business model in fall of 2010. But since we were bootstrapped, the time when I left my full-time job to work on Clash.com full-time was at the beginning of 2013. So that's more analogous to a company that receives seed funding at that point. How many employees and how much revenue do you do per year? And then we'll reel it back to when you graduated college and your first job and then your transition out of that job. So as of yesterday, we have 64 people. Did you have more before yesterday? We had less before yesterday. We had <laughs> one new person start yesterday. And last Monday, for the first time, we had two new engineers starting on the same day, which is very exciting. Okay, gotcha. And in 2019, our revenue just hit $50 million. And our revenue, thankfully, we've been very lucky, has been growing a lot this year due to the coronavirus. A lot of people are taking time to make photo products since they can't see their family in person. Yeah, well, I appreciate you joining and becoming a Patreon. And yeah, what do you think about that first group call? Oh, I thought it was great. I like that uh, once everybody kind of warmed up, they all got a little input put in and I felt like it went really well. And hopefully you'll have more Patreons uh, join in on the next one. Yeah. All right. Well, hopefully the call was helpful. It was very much so. Yeah. So hopefully that info was useful for you. What I found most useful is understanding like shit <sighs> well i guess we'll never know but if you want to know what i can help you out with on our one-on-one -on -one patreon call then become a member today and yeah why don't we reel it back why don't you tell us when you graduated college and what you did coming out of it because again i think this is what a lot of people could relate to is like having a nine to five coming out and then brainstorming a business idea where they can go ahead and make their own 
So I went right into a PhD program out of undergrad, and I was in the PhD program for five years. In 2007, when I started this project, I was about halfway through the PhD program. So a lot of the initial work that I did was during my downtime after I'd finished my coursework and was doing other research and working on collage.com part-time during that period. And I graduated in 2009, finished my PhD studying computer security, and then went to work at the NSA doing cybersecurity research. That was an interesting transition going from security to photo products. A lot of people thought, hey, you're an expert in cybersecurity. It's such a hot area. Why would you leave to go do photo products? And I think that is exactly why, because it seemed like something crazy to people. It was an industry where it wasn't super popular and full of huge venture capital investments. It was sort of sleepy industry where there hadn't been a lot of technological innovation and was well positioned for disruption. So I continue to work on collage.com on the weekends and at night while I was working for the government. And one of the nice things about a government job is that you don't sign an intellectual property ownership agreement with them like you do with most companies where they sort of own anything that you might invent. It's also nice because they don't expect you to work more than 40 hours a week. So it happened to work out well, where I could focus a lot on trying to start a company and have time to do that and not have conflicts with my employer doing that with the government job. That's a good positive that actually I haven't even thought about or heard about. It's like you come in, they expect those hours. And then after that, I could see like, okay, now I have excitement to work on what I really want to work on too. So versus again, I agree with you, any private company, I doubt you're just working 40 hours. And, you know, maybe there can be flexible depending on the work environment. But like you're saying, especially if you're in computer arena, that you might have to sign something where any idea you come up with is actually the company's idea too. Maybe that's what some of your friends who are in college would have had to do, but you didn't have to because it was a government job. Yeah, definitely. And my friends in college, I know a number of people who've been successful with entrepreneurship. The ones who had the biggest leg up and advantage were those who could afford to be working on their own and living in their parents' basements and had a, a parent with a basement that would let them do that and not uh, huge student loans overhanging. So it is definitely an advantage to just have your time to yourself after college. It's a luxury most people don't have. And it's something that a lot of entrepreneurs have and rely on to get started. But a government job is kind of a nice compromise because you're not getting paid as much, but the demands aren't as high and you do have more free time. It seems like even though you might not get paid as much over the long term, I think coming out, usually you still get even a little bit more. It just seems like the potential to keep earning more usually tops out really close to whatever you started at. That's definitely the case. So one way to look at government jobs is where I worked, the director of the NSA was making maybe $150,000 a year overseeing thousands and thousands of people. So you're capped at a kind of crazy low amount in your salary that you could easily get to working a few years at a tech company. And the starting salaries, I would say, are competitive if you're considering the broader market for software jobs across the country. They are definitely less if you can land a good job at a company like Facebook or Uber or Amazon or Microsoft. That makes sense. So you take the NSA job coming out of graduate school. And again, you went to University of Michigan? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Well, yeah, because I was curious. 
wondering why you went there again, because when you started off the episode here, you were saying you're in Arlington, Virginia, just in case anyone doesn't know, that's basically Washington, D.C., right? Yeah. So what was there a reason you went to Michigan? Well, I grew up in Michigan and it was super easy to go to Ann Arbor. It was about 30 miles away from my parents' home. So I wasn't living at home, but I wasn't too far away. I could always drive over there if I needed to. And it was a nice transition coming out of high school, not being halfway across the country. And then I came to DC for the government job after graduating, but prior to that, I lived in Michigan my whole life. Okay. So we go back to basically Washington, DC, where you're taking the security job. Is that when you have your girlfriend too? Like you find her? Because I know you said you started the collage during school. We've actually been together since we were 17. Okay. Wow. Which was 2002 when we first met. So we've been together the whole time. Yeah. So you've been making collages a long time. Yes. What's interesting is your transition, what you're saying. So you started the collage.com while you were in school? Yes, that's correct. So now that we kind of understand, even though you took the NSA job, did you think that maybe eventually your company, Collage.com, was going to become a big company or is it just going to keep being a side hustle and just see what happens? I don't think that you can reasonably predict what's going to happen with something like that. I think you have to take it step by step. And there were many milestones and exciting things where we saw sales increase or landed new deals. I'd be lying if I said that I was able to predict that we would have $50 million in revenue in 2019 back in 2012. Just like today, it's impossible to predict how much further we might grow and whether we would reach the point of having an IPO in a few years or really what the future holds for us. You can only extrapolate a little bit from the current situation and the rest is sort of the excitement of the unknown. Like it's impossible to predict the government will make you stay at home for weeks on end <laughs> out of nowhere. Yes. That is definitely hard to predict. Yeah, I would say so. All right. So tell us about the transition. I don't know if you want to tell us why you were working. Again, we know you were doing the basically 40 hours a week and working on that part time. Just walk us through, I guess, whatever you think is the most interesting in starting this story. So a little bit before the point where I left the job full-time, the first thing that really made us feel like we were onto something is when we started working with daily deal companies back in 2011, which at the time was all the rage before Living Social and Groupon crashed and burned. But back then, it was really exciting when we had our first deal that sold several hundred photo products at once. And I was having to answer phone calls and call people back and respond to customer support emails because we didn't even have a customer support person back in 2011 when we had our first deal. And during that year, it kept getting bigger and bigger. And we had a really big break. At the end of 2011, when we were put on Good Morning America for Christmas for products, I was spending Wednesday night before Thanksgiving at 11.30 p.m. talking to Tori Johnson on the phone, and she was grilling me about how our website was set up and were we prepared to handle this amount of traffic and everything. And luckily, we passed her test, and she put us on TV, and we sold over $100,000 worth of photo products in that one day. The day before Thanksgiving? The day before Thanksgiving is when I was talking to her on the phone about the deal. And we were featured sort of during the Cyber Week segment for deals and steals with our photo collages. Just so everyone knows, Cyber Monday. So it's like the couple of days after Thanksgiving. 
Yeah. Or end of November, in case anyone's wondering. Again, just because of worldwide, I don't want everyone to assume that they know what Thanksgiving was. And just so everyone knows, that's when Christopher Columbus came over here and decided to not sit down nicely with all the Indians and break bread, but did other stuff. I think we found out recently. Well, not recently, but I, I always just think it's funny when it's kind of it's transitioned in my lifetime that it used to be a, like a wonderful holiday. And then they've kind of opened it up more to tell us what actually happened on Thanksgiving, if you will. Yeah. And it's definitely a big point in time for consumer spending in America for Christmas. What we've found is that people will start spending a lot on that Cyber Monday, the Monday after Thanksgiving, but really spend a consistently large amount of money that whole week nowadays, since people have that whole time to shop and online e-commerce has evolved a little bit since the original Cyber Monday, where the idea was that people would purchase stuff on Monday because they had internet at work and would have to wait until Monday because they didn't have internet access at home and things are definitely much different now. What's amazing is that you initially said too in the earlier in the interview is like you saying 50% of your revenue basically comes in what a six week period. So it's the kind of the end of November all the way through December. Yes. And it was actually more like a three week period this past year because our shipping deadlines, because we custom manufacture each product and have a lead time for producing it. It's not just sitting on a shelf. Our shipping deadlines are around a week to a week and a half before Christmas. And Thanksgiving was really light. So we had a very compressed shopping season last year. So what really blew you up was what year was it that the Cyber Monday thing happened for you? 2011. Okay. When that started and then in the following years, we ramped up more and more with Groupon and Living Social. And the second thing that really propelled us was during Christmas of 2013, where we had been working with Living Social and had a deal for a photo blanket, which we didn't have photo blankets back in 2011 and had since added them. They'd become a really popular product. And the deal was doing so well that our representatives at Living Social called us up and they said, hey, your deal's selling very well. Can we feature this as the number one deal in the email that we send out to all of our Living Social subscribers on Cyber Monday? You're like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we dutifully called up our blanket vendor and asked him what he could do for us. And he happily told us that they could provide 25,000 blankets and we sold out 25,000 blankets very quickly and had to actually turn off the deal, which led to probably the most harrowing time in the history of our company. As it turned out, the person who told us that his company could ship 25,000 blankets could only ship 15,000. And we didn't know which 15,000 they were going to be until a few days before Christmas. So as you might imagine, this is a complete nightmare for customer service. We were completely unprepared to have the level of contacts that we had and had a lot of negative reviews posted about our company. And we didn't even have the resources to contact each person individually or answer the phone. We just had to email everyone that had reached out to us and say, hey, you know, we're really sorry about this. We're a small company. We only have 10 people who work at the company right now, and we're all working full-time on customer service, but we have tons and tons of contacts and we can't talk to everyone. So that was really difficult for us. And the problem lasted into the next year because people still wanted their blankets and were still calling us about them. And it really took 
until we hired a team of eight additional customer service people in March to actually clear through the backlog that we had created for ourselves by overselling blankets during Christmas time. Yeah. Um, what year was that again? That was 2013 Christmas. I guess that was a year after you had actually quit your job. And the only reason I'm known, I'm looking at your timeline, so it's a little bit easier. I just want to make sure everyone's in the same boat as tries to figure out where you are along the scale, right? When you quit, because... Yes. So you had just quit your job, but I guess you had quit it kind of a year earlier. Yeah. It seemed like everything was going well end of 2013 there. And gosh, it goes from like a watershed moment of happiness, right? That it seems like they want to feature you and then you call your manufacturer. And I was just imagining that you're basically praying that the manufacturer says, yes, I can do 25,000 blankets, right? Well, how much did the Living Social ask? The manufacturer told us that he could do 25,000 blankets. And then you only sent out 15, but I didn't even know if you were trying to ask him to do more before that. We asked him, how many can you do? And that's the number that he overestimated to us. And it's interesting because what actually happened is that the 25,000 number was based on more conservative projections of orders from their other customers with whom they had SLAs that required them to print the blankets or base penalties, and they had no SLA with us. What's a SLA? An abbreviation for service level agreement, basically contract that says if you print this blanket more than three or four days after the order is submitted to you, then we're going to impose monetary penalties for that and we're going to pay you less for that blanket. And it may escalate as time goes on so that they have an incentive to print those blankets rather than delay them like they did to ours. And so it was a combination of maybe over-optimism about what capacity was available and potentially not caring as much about our business situation and caring more about filling their capacity if they do happen to be able to print all of them. So that was the first big loss in contracts for us. And we corrected the situation going forward by having very aggressive escalating fees that would get imposed if vendors did not print products on time and our customers suffered as a result. So I guess this is what you were alluding to when I asked about buying a domain and getting attorneys involved. Yes. Even if he said 25,000, right? I would imagine you're like, hey, you're definitely sure you can do 25,000 because you knew that like this could be a potential issue, I would think, right? Yeah. And we found that a contract is really important because sometimes people aren't even being malicious. Right. He could have just been an accident, right? Yeah. Yeah. And if you put a contract in front of somebody and they're staring at it and they can see, oh, wow, if I screw up, it's going to be really costly for me, then it'll force them to take a closer look maybe at their operations. And if they balk at signing that agreement, it's a red flag for us that maybe they can't actually meet the terms of the agreement and ship stuff on time to customers. At that point, it seems like we've all learned that maybe we should have an SLA service level agreement in place. I mean, is that easy to even have when you're starting up your business? Like, could you have done that from the get-go and you just didn't know about it? No. And that's what's really difficult about getting into the print products industry. If you want to get into this particular industry is that people won't really talk to you or give you good prices or sign contracts like that if you're small. And it is kind of lucky that we were able to bootstrap, but it's a big barrier to entry. 
because of the way that the printers work. They're not set up super well to work with smaller customers at good prices and good levels of availability for customers. And so this was your second big experience. You were saying that, I guess, if we're looking at your timeline of what happened, where the first one was, I guess, a few years earlier when we we're saying y'all took off and got that first big bump. But this was your second big part of your story where this seemed like it was going to be a great thing. And then it seems like it took months to try to correct. And I don't even know how you honestly come back from that many. I'm not looking at the reviews, but just imagine a lot of negative reviews coming in. It's kind of hard to even those out over time, I would think. Yeah, it was very difficult and it was a big accomplishment for our customer service team. They were telling customers after we got through this backlog, they were telling everyone, go and leave a review, go and leave a review. And when we got our reviews back up to a good level, that was something that they were really proud of doing. And this deal that happened with Living Social, while it was painful short term to scale up and deal with all of the issues that came out as a result, it led to very rapid revenue growth. The year prior to that, 2012, we had about 1 million in revenue, and then we went to 4 million in revenue, and then 16 million in revenue in the following two years by ramping up rapidly with our deals on Living Social. And for a while, we were actually the biggest seller on Living Social, which is now out of business and sold themselves for next to nothing to Groupon, who is also not doing well. So that was a wave that we rode that would not really be possible for a business to do again because daily deals have sort of waned in popularity and are not really a good opportunity to grow anymore. So what else could we learn from that experience with this? I mean, it sounds good that you're saying we're able to deliver these blankets. I mean, were you giving them at a discount? I mean, were you giving them a $5 coupon or something if they left a good review because some of us are going to fall into this bucket or maybe we just want more positive reviews. And it says a lot that you're able to come back from that because again, I don't think most companies would be able to. Well, I can't say that what we did was necessarily amazing. It worked out for us. What we did is wrote an apology with a photo of everyone at the company explaining how we were a small company and what had happened and the fact that we were misled by one of our vendors in that the vendor printed orders for other big businesses instead of us. And we sort of got screwed as the little guy and here's what we're doing about it and offered everybody who was affected by this a $75 voucher that they could use to purchase any products on Clawish.com. Or of course, they could go to Living Social and get a refund of their original voucher if they wish to do so. And some people did that, but a lot of people did end up wanting to receive their blankets and ended up spending their vouchers after the fact. With that, you said you sent a photo of everybody in your company too? We had a big group photo where everyone had sort of somber faces and wrote an apology letter and just tried to be as transparent as possible with our customers and letting them know what happened and what we were trying to do about it. I mean, I didn't know if that was a collage photo as well that you sent out. No, it was just a regular photo with everybody. So it makes sense how you can kind of turn a negative. And again, you're being honest because it's 100% based on what everything you said, right? That is what literally what happened. So people can kind of get behind you and then support you even though they didn't get the product that they wanted. Yeah, we had some really nice emails from people saying, hey, I understand. It's really unfortunate that you were in this situation. 
And then we've got other very angry and rude emails too, and sad ones also. And it's something we really try to keep in mind that sometimes if a product is late, then some grandparent on her deathbed might not get to see the photo blanket that was made for her. And if you have enough customers, there's going to be situations like this. And so we try to take really seriously having our products arrive on time with high quality for as many people as possible. You can't do really anything about the negative or sad ones because they're going to come regardless. But I can almost guarantee you get no, I understand if you didn't write anything. Yeah. At least one good lesson I learned is just like, hey, explain what's going on and why. Because if you just keep hiding behind something and just didn't say anything, then you wouldn't have had that issue. And I mean, a $75 voucher is a big deal too, because then I guess hopefully they're coming back and trying it out and you can prove to them that, hey, on this next go around, you can see, right? Yeah. Don't lie to your customers and don't establish a culture where customer service representatives lie to customers. Shutterfly, actually, one of our big competitors got burned by that. And popular news anchor on Twitter posted about how she contacted customer service because her Christmas cards didn't arrive and they gave her the runaround and essentially lied to her about what had happened to try to save face and that backfired badly. So it's really important to have a culture of honesty and transparency with your customers because it's just short-sighted to try to cover up mistakes that you made. People are going to find out. Every time it's so easy if you just take responsibility because you're just saying, hey, this is what happened. But just let you know, like, we still take responsibility. I mean, if you say a lie, you've got to remember it first off, just in life, right? So it's way harder to remember a lie if he keeps lying and having all these lies versus if you just tell the truth, you don't have to think about it. And yeah, it's bad, especially if you're saying, I didn't know about that with Shutterfly. You're saying where, I mean, you could lie about it. And then eventually, if you keep doing that, it seems like you're going to get caught like you're saying, I guess maybe they did. It just makes no sense. So just being honest and stepping up and saying, this is what happened. I think most customers will kind of understand, even if you still got the angry or mad uh, emails, if you will. So at that point, I don't know if we should just jump back for a minute and just figure out when exactly you left your old government job. Like, is that right when you got funding? And I was curious, you told us about the purchase price and whatnot, but like, when did you transition to college.collage.com? And was it that the whole time since 2007 when you started that? Our original name, which is more quaint, is Scrap Walls. And that's the name we were operating under until we purchased the domain name, collage.com in 2012. That was before I left to work full-time. And we have never had any outside equity investment. So when I left, at first, it was a little bit concerning to have to make enough money to pay your salary. Otherwise, you don't get it. But we were growing pretty rapidly at the time. So we were able to pretty quickly hire some additional people. And it was less of a risk for me personally to be in that situation. So I would say we were very lucky in having a product where we could achieve product market fit prior to having to take on financial risk personally and have a decent amount of sales coming in before leaving my full-time job. And so how old were you? Do you remember? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I was 29. Yeah, you could do the math. You're an engineer. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, that's what I thought mid-upper 20s. I didn't do all the calculations here. So again, you're at Washington, D.C. You said now your co-founder is in San Francisco. So was he still there the whole time? I'm just trying to figure out if you both left your jobs at the same time or exactly. You're telling us from your perspective. We were both doing grad school. He actually did his PhD in economics at the University of Michigan, but he was wrapping that up around 2015 and was doing an internship out in San Francisco with Elance Odesk, now Upwork. And he joined 
full-time a few years after I did. And at that point, I would say we were definitely more of a serious company and had more employees. So are you all 50-50 partners? Pretty much, yeah. And I think it's really good that way. And I would recommend that to first-time entrepreneurs because when you don't have as much experience, you're going to have crazy ideas. And looking back, I think the things where we both agreed that it was a good idea have a pretty good success rate. And the things where only one of us thought it was a good idea and really pushed to pursue it anyway have probably a lower success rate. So it helps to have somebody to be on equal footing and have to answer and have a check on your power, especially if you're doing it for the first time. Do you have an example of that? Let me think for a second about that. That's all good. I'm sure there are some, because if you thought that up, but you're like, yes, basically you're saying it's better if two PhDs agree versus one agrees and one disagrees and agree. It makes sense. Like if you get momentum where all of you are on board, I guess you're going to have more momentum to want to do it too. But give us an example of one time when you did something or he did something where y'all didn't agree with and it didn't work out. And then maybe where you both agreed and it did work out. I think that the story about our decisions surrounding apps is a good example of that because it went through different phases. At first, we both agreed that it was a good idea to try to make an app because everyone was making an app. And this was in 2012. My grandma even made an app back then. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this is an example of a problem that a lot of entrepreneurs fall into, which is doing what everyone else is doing when you shouldn't because everyone else is wrong. And this is the case with apps back in 2012. Made the app. And we had a modest amount of people using the app. They were using it to make digital collages and weren't buying anything. And we had the capability to buy products with the app, but the conversion rate was extremely low. And the people making digital collages were teenagers in Japan. And our customers were middle-aged women in America. And so there was a mismatch and we didn't really have a good fit there. So we worked on the app for a little while. And then I had an idea that I thought was compelling to make an app that allowed you to tell more of a story because we had just launched photo books and had some cool technology for building collages and laying the collages out on different pages. And Joe was very skeptical of this and was right about that. But furthermore, at that point, we both reversed our whole opinion about apps. And the epiphany for me there was that I thought about what if we owned or were able to purchase the most popular photo collage app right now, Pit Collage, how much would it be worth to us and what would we do with it? And then thinking about how customers use these apps and how they purchase photo products, realized nobody's going to buy photo products from a digital collage app. They're making these collages so they can share them on Instagram or whatever. They're not going to buy these things. This isn't valuable. If somebody wants to purchase a photo blanket for their mother, they're not going to go to the app store and type photo collage app. They're going to go to Google and type photo blanket. And so after we sort of realized that apps were not a great way to sell photo products, we went the other direction and invested our engineering resources into making our mobile website better. So that when somebody did type photo blanket into Google and came to our website, they could easily just make a photo blanket. Nobody gets to the shopping cart on a good mobile e-commerce site and says, wow, I really wish I could download an app so that this business could send me push notifications. They want to just complete their process as effortlessly as possible. And so it was a great decision for us in hindsight to invest in 
making mobile really seamless for our customers. That's not the first thing you think about when you download an app that you really want those push notifications? Not me personally. I can't speak for everyone. Right. I'm joking. I don't have a scalable internet business. So your podcast, your guest that you interview resonates a lot more. Uh, you know, you interview them very well and uh, you're quite consistent. So, you know, I, when I'm going for a drive, that's what I listen to. Well, yeah, like I said, I appreciate it. So you're in Dubai? Yeah. So it's the capital of the UAE. He actually was in the Middle East. Oh, wow. You know, I don't know if he invests at all, but at least he can definitely point you in the right way and understand the stuff that you have to deal with. Yeah, uh, that'd be awesome. Okay, yeah, I'll reach out to him. So I helped, finally. Yeah, just talking to you has uh, helped uh, help get my thinking going. Small businesses have unique needs. And despite the current uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help you by matching your role with qualified candidates so that they can help you find the right person quickly. One of the features that I most like about LinkedIn Jobs that can help you find the right candidate is being able to target a candidate by the geographic area. And, well, LinkedIn Jobs is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified members every day so that it's seen by people looking for jobs just like yours. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And it's funny, like you were saying, that making your website a lot more mobile friendly, I think a way cheaper way to actually do the app from my understanding is like when you go to a website, whatever browser you're going to use on your phone, if you just had that as a standalone as an app without doing all the extra stuff with the app where you have to do the clicks and whatever, if you just made it basically a browser that just went to your site as the app, it's almost just as good or even better now than if you spent a lot of time developing an app for an Android and for an iPhone, because when they do those upgrades too, they have issues there as well that people don't think about. Yeah. And we actually shut down our original app, which was written in Objective-C and native iOS app and created a new app that was, like you say, sort of a wrapper for our website, but it just wasn't adding any value. We toyed with the idea of app store ads, but there wasn't really a great market for that. And perhaps there are some business models where having it driven by an app makes sense. I know that free photo prints where you can get monthly photo prints for free and they upload your photos in the background is done well. But for us, it just wasn't adding any value, even with that website wrapper. And it was still a significant amount of engineering work, even though it was a website wrapper to keep that working. Because when you're changing your website, then think about, I don't just have to test this on my browser. I have to test it in the app that's wrapped around the browser that has some idiosyncrasies. And so there's still substantial, although not quite as large engineering cost to maintaining that app that was a browser wrapper. I mean, I 100% agree with you. I probably would have done exactly what you've done. I'm like, well, let's just try a simple app with that. And I could definitely understand even what I said earlier. It's like, okay, once they upgrade Android systems or iPhone systems, and then you have different types of, especially Android phones, the screen size, et cetera, it definitely sounds easier than maybe the original app you made. It's still not worth it. The only way it'd be worth it, I guess, is like, okay, if you could get that SEO space where people are searching in there 
Yeah. And then you're like, okay, it's a different way to market. So maybe we can get potential people on there. But again, if it becomes more of a headache, then it's not worth it. So you found out you just totally did away with it altogether now? Yeah. And I think a big litmus test for whether an app might be valuable for you or not is are customers really wanting to use your product every week, every few weeks, or more frequently? Or do you want your customers to use your service that frequently and they don't really have a compelling reason to do it? Right. It makes sense. Think like when we said all the rage of like apps earlier, I guess 2012, 2013, you were saying is just if I'm going to use it one or two times, what's the point? Even once a month, if you're not doing it weekly, if someone's not going to use that app weekly, then it's kind of a hard reason to go through all these development costs and whatnot, especially going forward when there's more and more systems and you can just use whatever browser and make your website as nice as mobile friendly as possible. And then you get what you need. It sounds like. Yeah, another big trend that occurred between 2012 and now, that was eight years ago, and phones are so much more powerful, and the mobile web browsers are so much better. It used to be where you couldn't upload more than one photo at once from a mobile web browser, and it used to be where if you have too many photos rendered in a mobile web browser, it'll just crash. That's not a problem anymore. You can select 100 photos from your iPhone and upload them, no problem almost just as fast as a computer. So the reasons to have native apps were temporary and a lot of them have gone away since the advent of smartphones and browsers are so much better and faster nowadays too. Why don't we jump back to, I guess, after you survived your downfall as far as the 2013 going into 2014, right? Mm -hmm. Do you want to jump back into that story and just walk us chronologically through the last five and a half years? Sure. So we were pretty much ramping up smoothly, fixing the problems we had earlier, growing from 1 million to 4 million to 16 million to 25 million in revenue and expanding our market share of largely daily deal driven photo product sales. And that's the time at which daily deals started to climb pretty rapidly. If you don't mind, can you tell us why? Because I know they did. And I mean, I've heard that like how much you were saying how Living Social went out of business and Groupon's not doing well. I'm just curious why they went out of business. I feel like you would obviously know since I guess you were hooked into it pretty hard. I think that there's some degree of customers getting sick of things that are trendy. And it was really exciting for people at first to get these deep discounts. And then certain businesses only worked with these companies a few times and realized it wasn't profitable for them, so stopped. So also the quality of the deals was maybe better at first while companies were trying it out. So there's a little bit of craze going on there, but I do believe there's value in the model of essentially being an email marketing aggregator where you're finding the best deals and sending them to customers. I think that's something that's valuable, but I would say overall, these companies are mismanaged and they were, I think, fundamentally short-sighted in believing that their customers were the businesses and not the people who were opening emails and buying things each day. We went over to Living Social to visit their office spaces as well and talk to the people who were our reps there. And I would say that while it was fun, it was more like a party and less like a business. And so when you have a company that's run that way, I didn't get to see a lot of the stuff that went on there internally or things that have gone on internally at Groupon that have caused them to lose 90% of their stock value since their IPO. But I think that they're just plain mismanaged as well and didn't have strong leadership with a good vision and focused on having a real business. Yeah. They needed to focus more on working hard. 
I think they need to focus more on making money. <laughs> I agree with you. When they get all that money, even pre-IPO money, where they don't have to worry about actually generating a profit, then... They were very flush with investment dollars. That is true. Right. Then you can have fun. Like with that culture, like you're saying, does business really get done here? Do they actually work? Is that what I'm hearing from you? Yeah, I think there was a lot of expenditure on things that were not adding value for the company. <laughs> That's a very nice way of putting it. Sorry, I cut you off. We're 2014, I guess mid-2014, where you're coming back in here. Yeah. And then I would say at that point, it was a very challenging period, shifting from hyper growth, 4x year over year, to being a little bit more stable and needing to be more efficient because we were not as competitive with AdWords at that point. With a daily deal voucher, you just see a photo of the product and make a purchase decision. And if it looks nice, then you buy it. And the user experience on the back end is something you don't encounter until after you've made your buying decision. So that type of marketing channel made it easier to sell now and make improvements later. But with Google Ads, if you weren't converting people to sales, then you couldn't be competitive. And so we were just trying to keep up and get everything working and launch new products, but we weren't as focused on unit economics. We weren't as focused on software quality and testing and being methodical with product management and all these other things that real mature companies needed to do. I think as first-time entrepreneurs, we were slow to recognize the need for this shift and really take these things seriously since we weren't just rapidly growing regardless of what we were doing with quality standards on the back end. Again, you're saying the shift was the daily sites. People just saw a picture, they could press purchase, and then it played around with your back end, so it didn't matter. But as those daily sites sales went down, that means yours did. So you had to transition to buying Google AdWords. And then if people came in through that way, you needed to have a better experience. And it seemed like you didn't have a great experience. And that's the reason you're having issues, I guess, and you needed to focus more on making a better back end or easier back end for these people to buy. Yeah. And that was a major transition between 2015, 2016, 2017 to backfill the revenue that was going out the door from these daily deal sites with revenue through other ad channels that required higher quality user experience. And we were able to keep our revenue growing during that time. We've grown about 50% year over year over the past few years. So we were able to do it, but it required a different mentality toward managing the business and it was challenging to make that shift. Can you give us an example of like what you did, like just easy that people can understand over audio, the changes of maybe before and after? So an example of something that we did that improved our conversion rates was getting reviews from customers on our site and getting those review stars, getting the metadata, working with Google, having things that real customers said about our products on the product pages. So that was one thing that was important. Another thing that was more technical was systematically analyzing our site performance and making our pages load a lot more quickly. And this is really important for SEO as well as for paid ad conversions. And getting a website to be fast and keeping it there requires a certain level of operational discipline and processes that you need to put in place that you might not have during the crazier earlier days of a startup. 
this is probably part of the issue. You might want to look nice and maybe get these reviews on there. But at the same time, if you put some of these reviews on there, maybe it could be slowing down your site too. So it's the give and take and trying to figure out the efficiency of what really matters is trying to optimize both. Yeah, it's really difficult because you go from this mode of operating where you're just processing information that is coming in from customers, that's coming in from partners, and somebody's complaining about this problem here, so you respond to it and you make this thing better, and you're just working this way and there's a small team and everyone knows what everyone else is doing, it gets you up off the ground. But then as you are larger and you have multiple different teams, you need to be more deliberate in your processes because the customer is not going to call you up on the phone and say, hey, this page loaded in five seconds instead of three seconds because you didn't compress your images properly. You need to have processes in place where somebody is explicitly responsible for analyzing whatever performance dimension it is that you care about, whether actual site performance or conversion rates at different steps, somebody needs to own that, needs to look at it on a regular basis and have a way of prioritizing opportunities that come out of that and getting them done effectively and then validating that they've actually had an impact. And that requires a whole lot of stuff that you just don't have when you're first starting out. And this is all the way through even today, would you say? Because I'm trying to figure out where we are as far as you figuring that out. And in 2015 to 2018 has been that transition out of that. And you just slowly, seems like each week or each day or whatever over those years, you're trying to implement better processes with your team, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that we have been incrementally trying to fix some of what people often refer to as technical debt but also deficiencies in the processes and responsibilities and that sort of stuff progressively since 2015. I think we've gotten a lot better at this point and are in a position where we're able to have better quality, better efficiency than a lot of other companies. But it's really been an intense emphasis on improving our operations, I would say, since 2015, when prior to that, it was more of a rapid focus on gaining market share and taking advantage of the newly found product market fit. Do you ever get upset? I think everyone gets upset, but yeah, definitely. It's not always easy when you're working on things that are challenging. If you don't get upset, then you're probably not pushing yourself very hard or don't have very high standards. But I think it's helpful to have perspective on the fact that people can only do so much. And one really important rule that we expect everyone to follow at the company is to operate under the assumption that everyone has the best intentions and has knowledge of how to do their jobs and made the best decision that they could at the time. And I think this is especially challenging in a remote environment when people are communicating over email primarily in Slack rather than seeing each other in person. It's easy to see something somebody did from afar that didn't work out well and think that they did something dumb or malicious or whatever. But instead of getting mad at them or getting upset, you need to be disciplined in remembering there's probably something going on here that I'm not aware of that led to this. And if I ask this person what happened, it'll probably make a lot more sense why they made this decision. And we try to emphasize doing that. And that's something that I try to do if I see something that the end result causes me to be upset. I try to think first about giving the person the benefit of the doubt 
assuming that they were trying to do the right thing and then talking to them and listening first, you know, not opening a discussion with, hey, you really screwed this thing up, but tell me about what happened here. I mean, somebody knows that they made a mistake, that something went wrong and is already going to be feeling bad about it. So it's always effective to hear from them what their perspective is and can help diffuse the anxiety that people have when seeing each other make mistakes without seeing the details of why that happened. So you don't give them virtual spankings? Not at our company. We do over here. I'm asking if you ever get upset because you sound so calm, like cool, calm and collected. I don't know if you're always like this or just during interviews or, you know, that's part of the reason I was asking. Well, I learned that it's best to try to not show that you're upset to other people. Right. Usually doesn't help you. Agreed. I think there are maybe a few situations if you really feel like somebody else is taking advantage of you, where showing your emotions and how you feel is actually beneficial to you in any way. It's better as a mature adult if you can describe your emotions and say, hey, I know that you were trying to do the right thing, but when you did whatever that upset me, made me feel this way, and be able to explain it in a calm way that doesn't put the other person on the defensive is what I've found to be the most effective way to resolve some of these difficult situations that can come up in a work environment. So what's been the most exciting time of your business? I think that some of the early times were really exciting when we got these big TV deals, when we had these great ramp ups and sales with Living Social and Ben Groupon. Can we get a replay of that excitement after you got that first deal? I guess that helped you with Launch's business? I would say that there is probably a lot of fear going on at the same time, referring to the original Good Morning America TV appearance, because while we had taken every precaution that we were aware of to make sure that our website would be working, we had never had that much traffic. We didn't have the technical sophistication to do advanced load testing. And so we didn't really know what was going to happen and we're just sort of hoping that nothing bad occurred, which I think dampened some of the excitement. But another thing that I should mention is that we had a later TV deal where we did have a problem, and that was a little bit nerve-wracking too, where our website wasn't functioning properly for Internet Explorer users. And somebody in Internet Explorer clicking on buy would just see no response from the website, no page loading, no spinner, no anything. And this also caused an influx of calls where we had to spend all day just calling people back, telling them that they could place their purchase. And that problem only was going on for about an hour before we determined the root cause and were able to fix it. But that was also a little bit scary happening in one of the worst problems that we had with our website that jeopardized one of our TV deals. Well, luckily, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Internet Explorer, right? That is correct. The engineering team probably had a party when we dropped support for Internet Explorer last year. Do they even still have Internet Explorer? No. That was one of the problems. Right. I mean, I don't blame your engineering team, but if you're losing Internet Explorer now, then I'm sorry, you might have to stop listening to the podcast. You've got to go to somewhere else. <laughs> There's so many other browsers. So that's the reason I was joking around about Internet Explorer. But I just want to get a replay. Can we get a replay of right when you landed that first Good Morning America TV deal? Like, how did you tell your wife? 
want to hear what the excitement in your voice, what it sounded like. I'm curious. I'm sure all the listeners are as well. I think it was hard to remember what was going on at the time since it was a little while ago now, but it was somewhat surreal talking to this person who ran this national television show and had the power to give you the green light or not to hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales. And it was the night before Thanksgiving and we were just hanging out with my wife's family and doing the regular day before Thanksgiving stuff. And it was the real deal to have somebody calling you and asking you all these questions about what your website was going to do at 1130 at night and to see somebody else too who was that serious about their job and vetting their vendors. It was, I would say, quite an experience going through that and having to take that seriously and being able to inspire confidence in someone else that your business was ready for that type of deal. So after Kevin took the call, did he run down from the bedroom and just say, guess what, everybody, I got the deal? I don't think I heard about it until the next day, unfortunately, but we were all crossing our fingers that it was going to come through and work out. Did you jump around? I'm not a jumping around type person. I think it can take a while for things to set in. Maybe it's surreal at first, but just not somebody who expresses my emotions overly, I would say. And that's maybe one of my faults that I could be more exciting sometimes when things are going well. I think my personality is such that I'm more thinking about what might be going wrong or what could screw this up. And as a manager, always trying to look out for, despite the fact that things are going well, what do we need to do to improve? What might blow all this up and lead to a bad outcome? And I think that paranoia and skepticism can be helpful a lot of times, but I think it also can lead people to say that that you could be more positive as well. So that's been a challenge too sometimes, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't change a thing. You are who you are. And it's uh, gotten you to 50 million a year today, right? Yeah, definitely. So I think we all learn from different people. We all have different personalities. It sounds like you're a very even keeled, the most perfectly even keeled person I've interviewed to date. That's saying a lot. <laughs> it is. It's a good thing. I mean, like, it sounds like you get too, trust me, I've had some people who are overly negative. It seems like you're perfectly in balance at all times. <laughs> That's why I was curious. I'm like, I didn't know if he was super excited or what, what the excitement in his voice sounds like. So I was just trying to figure out some of the highs and lows. And that's what we try to walk through in your story. And I think we've done that before getting off. I mean, I'm just curious, as you said, and I agree with you, when you're communicating through Slack or email, sometimes it's really hard to get across a point to a team member, especially when you're talking about virtually, like, obviously, you hope they're doing everything with a good mindset, or else you probably wouldn't hire them if they're making mistakes on purpose, and they shouldn't probably be on your team. But sometimes it's hard to get across when they're not like in the cubicle next to you or the office next to you where you can show them that. And that can get frustrating as well. But it seems like you're still even key on that. But just tell us about dealing with the virtual team. Do you have any suggestions, especially as people are going to have to deal with this more going forward? What's worked for you? Because it seems like you've been virtual the whole time. Yeah, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is that having a trusting relationship with somebody else doesn't necessarily require you to be physically proximate to them, but the physical proximity makes it easier to show vulnerability, which is the thing that's important for building trust. You can replace that by emphasizing a mistake-friendly culture and 
as a manager talking about the things that you're trying to improve for yourself with people who report to you, making sure that people don't feel blamed for mistakes, having retrospective discussions for projects or incidents where managers try to emphasize that we can't just take away from this that somebody made a mistake and they're going to do better next time. What type of training can we give people? What type of processes can we put in place? What would it have taken from management to prevent this type of problem? And I think when you can open up this way and everyone can be honest about the things that they screw up, then it makes it a lot easier to trust that people are doing the right thing, even though you can't see them personally. I'm curious, what's Kevin's like weekly grind? Like, what are your hours like today? What are you doing day to day or week to week? Just curious. Well, the baby's changed that a lot. So the baby causes my workday to start at 7 a.m. I didn't used to start that earlier. And the nanny that we have stays until about five. So it's definitely seven to five during the week. Sometimes I'll get in a few hours at night, depending on what's going on. But what I found is that is I feel more productive when I just do maybe a few hours each day on the weekends, like Saturday and Sunday. It makes you feel like you got something done. You have the most energy at a certain time of day. And so taking a few hours then can lead you to get as much done as you might in three or four hours at some time during the week. So I don't try to work for as long as stretches during the week. I think it's also different depending on the type of work you're doing. Back when I used to write code a lot, I could code for 16 hours and be getting useful work done. I can't have conversations with people that require my attention for more than seven or eight hours in a day, whether it's interviewing prospective candidates, having one-on-ones with people I manage, doing interviews like this. If you had me doing podcast interviews for 12 hours, the last hour would be pretty worthless, I think. So it's important to try to match the time you're spending with the level of attention that is required for the task and not try to push the hours too much doing work that requires a lot of focus and and spread that out more when you have the most energy and do the easier things like going through your email or whatever during the hours that you're not as energetic. Well, we've only got 10 more hours in this interview, so I don't know if you want to take a quick break and then come back or what. I'm joking, obviously. So (laughs) I agree with you. What you're saying there is you got to go with the momentum of your energy too, right? If possible, try to get off my list, like the hardest thing that I don't want to do in the beginning and get that done with. But when you have low moments of energy, all of us are going to have it all day. I don't care if you have a lot of energy and are always excited, just like Kevin is, or if you're lower energy, just in general, like you're going to have some flows and it's better to check. If you want to check emails instead of starting off the day, I think most of us have a lot of energy starting off the day then wait. But maybe if you're low energy, then you can go ahead and do it and get that all the way. But just go with the flow of like, okay, do I have to critically think or be on point? Like you're saying, Kevin, it's like, I couldn't do this for eight hours a day too. (laughs) I'm the one barely doing any talking. I'm just asking a few questions. So there's some weeks too. I just go ebbs and flows of like, I used to try to do a couple podcast interviews a day, maybe two, sometimes even three, but I'm like, nah, one max is good because then you're going to get my maximum amount of energy. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Great important point there. So As we're signing off here, any last words of wisdom for anyone who's listening as far as if they have a business or wanted to start their own? Yeah, I think it's really important when you're making decisions throughout the lifetime of your business to 
think about whether you should be doing something the same way that other companies are doing it or whether other companies are wrong and you can have a strategic advantage. And with our app saga, we saw both sides of that, where at first we were wasting a bunch of time chasing after something that was illusory. And then once we switched, it became a major advantage that we could invest all of our resources into a platform that was better for our customers, even though it wasn't what was popular at the time. So I think that a lot of the toughest decisions we've had to make during the history of the business come down to having the right answer to that question. Well, thank you, Kevin, for joining us. And if anyone wanted to say thank you for doing the interview, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, you can send me an email to kevin at collage.com. Unless you're a recruiter, then please don't. <laughs> <laughs> we can just take it off if you want. <laughs> it's like it's someone who wants to be on a podcast. Yeah, I get about 10 emails a day about someone who wants to. I'm like, just stop. I don't even check that email account anymore. So, Well, I appreciate you, Kevin, for sharing your story here. All right. Thank you, Austin. Let's see. I'm looking at our new... What are we doing now for our Patreon, for our group calls? Oh, we're doing two a month? Yeah, we are. And the membership price is still the same? <laughs> Unbelievable. So if you want to become a member, join our Patreon membership by going to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. And again, the price is still the same. I'm not going to keep it this way forever. We're now doing two group calls a month for the price of one. You're welcome.